Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Shalom, shalom. I just lost connection, but I think I just got it back. Can you hear me? Give me some thumbs up. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, shalom, everybody. So um, this has been a big week. Uh, it's been a big week, and I am uh, just happy to see you all again. It's really a comfort after a week like this to see all of you. I, I think you, you may think I'm just talking, but I think that you all feel it also. You know, I think it's a special thing that we have going on in this fellowship. And I, and I want to bless you that Hashem showers even more favor upon you, that uh, you should bring the love and the encouragement and the comfort to everyone you encounter, uh, the same that you do to us here in this fellowship. Um, you know, we say that we should, we pray that we find favor in the eyes of God and man, because usually they come together. And it definitely, I feel like, comes together here in this fellowship because there's different levels, you know, of love and of encouragement. There's the intellectual level, which involves actually saying things, which is important, and which so many of you do throughout the week. You know, when you shower us with the, the love and the encouragement and the blessings and the prayers. As a matter of fact, this very morning, Helen from Australia wrote me just, and this is one of many, Just a, I just woke up and saw this message. I think I woke up and saw this message. Here it is. She wrote, hi, Ari, just a message to say how much I enjoy the fellowship sessions. And please don't be concerned about sharing too much. It feels like family and encourages me. Knowing others struggle sometimes, it's life. May your downs be overcome as we focus on the light of Torah. It seems that many folk have struggles, troubles, as we come closer to Mashiach's coming. May you and your family be blessed by Hashem. Just such a beautiful message. Shalom, Helen. It's just such a beautiful message, and we get those all the time. So many of you send us those, and I just want you to know they mean the world to us. It's almost as if you like intuitively know that we're in a lot of ways, we're on the front lines of the war here, not just the geographical, political war in Judea, but on a spiritual level, in the war against fear and doubt in our hearts. And it's like you know that sometimes more than anything, just a little bit of encouragement and friendship and love our way is just a big deal. And I'm just so grateful for it uh, because we do not, we do not have it all together here. Some people look and must think, oh, those guys really know what they're doing. We not at all. We are fighting tremendous spiritual darkness from without, but even more so from, from within. So thank you for that. And so before I go on and dive into all that's happening, I want to introduce someone else who's been a big source of strength and encouragement. Uh, sometimes I feel like we just alternate, you know, he sees things, off in a skewed way, and then I try to help him, and then boom, I'm right there, and he's helping me, and lately he's been helping me a lot, including just this very morning, uh, where he, not, I'm not talking about what you did minion-wise, because I'm sure you're going to share that, um, but uh, yeah, you, you've really been a big blessing to me, my brother, Jeremy Gimpel, it's all yours. Well, thank you very much. Hey, everybody, so good to see you all. I do have a quick technical announcement. The, I'm coming to the United States. I will be traveling. I'll be at the Manhattan Jewish Experience in New York. Um, Shabbat, July, I think that's 7th and 8th. July 9th, I'm going to be in Dallas, but the venue has changed. There was a logistical issue on that evening at the first venue, and I will be sending out an email and a WhatsApp and try to get everyone that's coming to that Dallas event to not go to the wrong venue because that just was told me like Erev Shabbat. So that is something just to be aware of. If you were going to come to the Dallas event, know that there is a venue change. It's still going to be in Dallas. It's just going to be somewhere else. 
and then Colorado is next, and then Orlando, and I would love to see anyone that can get to any of those events to see you all in person. Obviously, that is the purpose of this fellowship, to continue to sort of weave that tapestry together. And the more we connect, two fellowship members from Holland actually just dropped by the farm this morning. That was really fun. Um, and yeah, so Baruch Hashem, our fellowship is growing, the friendships are growing, memories are being made. And it's like the stronger this fellowship is, I don't exactly know how to explain it, but it is, there is a ripple effect that's happening, at least in my own eyes, I see it happening in Judea. We're getting, Arugot is now sending out more farms, we're controlling more land, we're developing more, not just farms, but farmers. Meaning for so many years, Jews didn't couldn't own land. In Bialystok, you couldn't own land as a Jew. And so we were removed from that type of manual labor. We had to become lawyers and accountants. And now a generation that's growing up sleeping on the ground and out in the mountains, connecting to sheep, connecting to goats. It's like a restoration, not only of the land, but of the Judeans that are growing up on the Arugot farm. And this fellowship is like a, a safe, I don't know, it's like wind beneath our wings. It's like a space that allows this growth to happen. And so you are the engine that is driving us forward very much. And although we definitely do not have it all figured out and we struggle every day, every day is a struggle. And I'm. you can ask Tahila, you can ask Ari, come Friday night, I literally just, I, 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 it's like the phone is out of batteries. It's like out, <laughs> that's it. I may get through the Shabbat meal and I am so exhausted from the week that Friday night comes and I'm just, we are working as hard as we know how to work and we are all doing it together. And you guys give us the emotional strength, the spiritual strength, the financial strength, everything. It's just been a blessing from beginning until end. And so what can we give back? It's the Torah that we learn from the land because the sages of Israel say the Torah of the land of Israel is nothing like the Torah outside the land of Israel the clarity and the understanding. That's why it says, for the Torah shall go forth from Zion and the word of God from Jerusalem. The Torah that's meant to be brought to the world. The headquarters is Jerusalem. We are the broadcasting headquarters. And it can really only come from here. Prophecy in Israel can only be achieved for a Jew in the land of Israel. And so the Torah that I wanted to share with you today has really been a guiding light for me for many, many years. And we look at Moses, who in this week's Parsha, this is almost his downfall. And you got to love the Torah that our heroes are not perfect. Our heroes have struggles. Our heroes have ups and our heroes have downs. And these heroes are there as life lessons for us to continue to study them because the struggle of man and woman 3,000 years ago, not much has changed. Just the context has changed. Just the technologies have changed. But our souls are the same souls, and this world is the same world, and pe people haven't changed much. The world really hasn't fundamentally changed much. There are still bad guys that are trying to control us, and there are good guys that are fighting for freedom. And Israel is this beacon of light surrounded by dictatorships, and who knows what's going on in Europe, which is, of course, always at our throats. And there's just this eternal battle between light and darkness, and the Torah gives us so much guidance of how to navigate this world. And so we don't know that much about Moses. So what we do learn, we should pay close attention to. The first thing we know about Moses is his good traits. We know that he's the humble of all men, most humble of all men. That's, he's not the wisest, he's not the strongest, he's not the smartest, he's the most humble. And the most humble allowed him to channel the Torah without ego. 
not wasn't his opinion. He was a direct conduit to give over the Ten Commandments, to give over the ways of God in the world. In his humility, it didn't mean that he thought um, low of himself. He just wasn't thinking about himself at all. His life was just dedicated to Israel and to God. And that's what it is to be humble. It is not to think um, less of yourself, but to think about yourself less. And he never thought about himself. He was just committed as a servant of God to the people of Israel to bring that light into the world. So that was sort of a gift that he was given. I don't think that Moses had to work on that. He was just given a gift to be humble. And there's some people that are given gifts and they're very intelligent. They have high IQs. There's some people that have a gift and they're very courageous. It's just in their nature. And they have, you know, everyone has their own gifts and everyone has their people that are loving, people that are giving. And at the same time, we have gifts. And at the same time, we have what we have, what we call our tikkun. We have what we have to fix in this world. And we are given that as well. And you can follow the tikkun that Moshe Rabbeinu has really from the beginning of the story. Moses encounters the burning bush in chapter three. And in chapter four, he reveals to God his weakness. And in chapter four, if we can get it up on the screen so we can read it together, something marvelous happens. And Moses said unto the Lord, my Lord, I'm not a man of words, neither yesterday or the day before, even now that you have spoken unto your servant, I'm heavy of speech and heavy of tongue. And so from here, don't keep the screen up, please. So from here, we see Moses is like, listen, you're asking me to be the spokesman, to go to Pharaoh, to go to the nation. I have a heavy speech. Now, it's unclear what that word means. Some, the Midrash says maybe he had a lisp, a speech impediment, but maybe he just meant like he doesn't have the right words. He's not a man of words. He's not good at speaking. He's just, I remember there was one time where a good friend of mine in my old community, Neve Daniel, his wife was suffering from cancer. And eventually it was such a long, painful story. His wife passed away. And then it was the Shiva, the seven days where you go and you, you comfort the people. And I went- Oh, Jeremy, you're not telling this story, are you? I'm telling this story because I feel like it's a little bit of a weakness that I have. I'm not good I'm with kidding. words in important situations and it's okay. And um, he's like- I mean, he's not Ari, but he's a dear friend of mine. And I wanted to go after the Shiva. Of course, I went during the Shiva. But after the Shiva, I feel like it's a special time because the house is now alone. And they're just kind of like with their own grief. So it's good to go visit them, especially after the first seven days. And I knew that he loved Tehillah's meatballs. He would always come over for Shabbat and go, Tehillah, your meatballs are the best meatballs. We love your meatballs. Tehillah does make very good meatballs for Shabbos. And so I said, Tila, here's what we should do. You should make him your favorite, his favorite meatballs and I'll bring it over. And then I'll like, he won't have to make dinner for him and his kids. We'll just bring over meatballs for them. And so I got there and it was I, the day after the Shiva, a couple of days after the Shiva, I don't exactly remember, but I know I was the only one there. He opens the door and I see my friend and I, I freeze and I, my eyes start to water up because I see that he's in a lot of pain still. And I'm a very like sensitive guy in that way. And I didn't know what to say, but he sees that I'm like, I love him. And I say, at least you have meatballs. I actually said that. I said, at least you have meatballs. That is the least comforting, dumbest thing. I don't know why I said that. I went home to Tehillah and I'm like, Tehillah, he opened the door and I said, at least you have meatballs. Like, what kind of comfort is that? That is the dumbest thing I've ever said. I'm just not good with words in those kind of situations. I'm like Moses. I just like, oh, it doesn't come out. And the guy happens to be in the media. He works in the media. 
he was so touched by me saying, at least you have meatballs. He wrote an entire article called, at least you have meatballs. And it, he said how much it touched his heart <laughs> that even dumb friends like me had such good intentions, but didn't exactly know what to say. But it was like, from my heart, we just wanted to comfort him and love him. And like Moses, like, I just, you know, what can I do? I'm not a man of words. <laughs> so I don't know what that meant by Moses, that he had a heavy speech. But what he's telling us clearly is speech is not his gift. It's, it's like his tikkun. And he's like, God, I'm speaking to you right now. And it's not like you fixed me. You'd think a direct encounter with the God of Israel I would be speaking like an orator of the highest order. I'm talking to you right now, God, and I'm still with this problem with my speech. It was bothered me yesterday. It bothered me before. And as I'm talking to you, it still bothers me. And then if we could put the slide up, God has a beautiful answer to Moses. And God says to Moses, Moses, and the Lord said unto him, who has made man's mouth? Pray tell. Think gave you that speech impediment, Moses. I made your mouth. I know exactly your strengths. I know exactly your weaknesses. I made you this way. And I'm telling you, with your weakness, I want you to be the spokesman. I want you to rally the troops. I want you to go and speak before Pharaoh. I know your strengths and I know your weaknesses. I made your speech impediment and now go. And here we are now, years later, we're in the desert. And Moses once again is commanded, I want you, Moses, to use your mouth. And I want you to speak to the rock. Moses doesn't speak to the rock. He's heavy of speech. This problem that he has comes back later on in the story. And it, they say it was that thing that happened around that rock and his lack of speech that did not allow him to go into the land of Israel. Now, there are many understandings of what he said. Was it what he said to Israel? Is it what he said to the rock? Was it lack of speech? Yes, speech, no speech. But speech was the downfall there. He was commanded to speak to the rock and he doesn't speak to the rock. And then God says, oh, well, with that, we know that Moses did not enter into the land of Israel. And then we see that like, okay, well, he's struggling with this tikkun. And then at the end of his life, although he doesn't go into the land of Israel, Moses gives the greatest speech ever known in human history. And it's called the book of Deuteronomy. It's called the book of Devarim, the book of words, the book of, of his speech. And it is the greatest, most powerful speech, the most impactful speech in world history. He stood before the nation and he gave over the book of Devarim as his last act before he died. And there's something very beautiful about that, that Moses started off his journey heavy of speech. He ends off his journey giving the greatest speech in human history. But in the middle, you see that he still does not, he, that, was his, that was his weakness and he, he fell and he was punished. And he never makes it into Israel. And so what is all of that teaching us today? So it's good to know your strengths because all of us have been given, all of us have gifts. God gave us all gifts. Tehillah has a gift. She makes great meatballs. I, that was just given to her. She makes the best meatballs. But she also has things that are like need to be fixed. All of us do. And so one of the most important works in our lives is twofold. One, to really know what are the gifts God has given us. Most people know that God has given them many gifts, but if you ask them on the spot, what's your gift? They won't necessarily know how to answer that. That's something that you really need clarity on. What are your gifts that God gave you to help build the kingdom? 
That's really what it's there for. What did, did gifts did he bring to make this world better, to make yourself better, to bring a new light into the world? What are the gifts? And the second, arguably more important, is what is your tikkun? What is the thing that God brought into your life that's there? And it, it's not just a one-time struggle. No, no, no. The tikkun is something that comes back and comes back and comes back again, just like with Moses. The story of Moses is teaching us about ourselves that all of us have gifts and all of us have tikkunim. And so you need to do a little bit of soul searching and think, what is the thing that I keep on stumbling upon? What is that thing that's like this baggage that I keep carrying with me that is not allowing my soul to fully be expressed in the world? That's not allowing my light to come in the world that I keep on sabotaging myself or that thing is sabotaging me? What is my tikkun? And the way to find that is exactly that. It's literally to sit at the edge of your bed and ask, God, what is the thing that I'm doing that is hindering my progress? What is the thing that I need to fix? What is the thing that I need to fix? What is it? And if you ask and you wait and you think and you meditate and you lehit bonen, you really like go through a soul searching, a cheshbo nefesh, a soul calculation, you will arrive at an answer. Now, it really could be that the answer may not be the ultimate answer. It doesn't matter. Start working with the light that's been given to you start fixing that. And then, you know, it could be you'll reveal a deeper level of tikkun that you couldn't have known without going through the first stages. And so Moses sees like, okay, I, I have this speech impediment. I have this problem with my speech. And ultimately, even though Moses doesn't go into Israel, he lives out a wonderful example of someone that was struggling with his speech. Ultimately, even after his downfall, still stood up and gave the greatest speech in human history. And so may we all be blessed to know our gifts, to know our tikkun, and then to take the steps to slowly etch away, at chisel away, chisel away to like fix that within us to really bring our light into the world. And so may you all be blessed with that, finding your gifts and finding your tikkun and then taking it to the next level. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Jeremy, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, just my own little two cents there. I've seen that often when I ask myself that question, what is my fixing? You know, what is my tikkun? Very often, the answer to that lies within my greatest problems, my greatest challenge. You know, the, the thing that I would most want not to be in my life, that one thing that's really just preventing me from being truly happy, the answer to what I need to fix within my own heart lies somewhere in there. So that's, that's uh, just something I wanted to share uh, because, you know, this self-investigation, looking within our own hearts is a big part of what life is, if not the greatest part of what life is. And there's been a lot of that this past week, because like I said, this past week has been very intense, tremendous highs and tremendous lows. And, you know, I remember Jeremy once showed me these videos of this stoic, you know, this guy who was all about stoicism and Jeremy was like intrigued by that for like a week or so. And I think about it every now and then, the stoic movement, it's, it's really gaining momentum. And it really, it advocates sort of letting go and disconnecting and maintaining like this dispassionate, disconnected approach, which would, uh, in order to minimize the inevitable pain of this world, you know, and, and living a Torah life 
is not about removing ourselves from the pain of this world, but fully engaging it and feeling it, like truly feeling the pain and feeling the joy and feeling the grief and the happiness and the sadness by elevating it and infusing it with, with consciousness and the, and the truth of Hashem. And, uh, you know, all that was much easier said than done this past week, because at times, you know, there was nothing I wanted more than to just disconnect. There's nothing I wanted more than to fortify those calluses around my heart, you know, that we all have around our hearts, just to like sort of numb ourselves from the crippling grief and the tragedies which have been befalling us. You know, I wanted to like, I wanted to get rid of this feeling of victimhood and helplessness that I started to feel. And I, I couldn't help but feeling it. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't see the way out of it or how to neutralize it. Or, and and I, I, because I don't see any virtue in being a victim. I don't like it. I don't think it's cool. I think this movement in America where everybody's fighting each other tooth and nail for who's the greatest victim, I think it's boring and it's, it's silly and it's sad. There's no value in being helpless. It just, it simply felt like a lack of faith in my heart, but I, I didn't know what to do about it. It was affecting my life and my marriage and my children. I was not shining the light that I wanted to shine. And so what exactly am I talking about here? I'm sure many of you know. The chapter I want to talk to you about here is the, the cold-blooded murders that we've been enduring here in Israel. Starting, I want to start with last week, the cold-blooded murder of the holy sweet Mayor Tamari. It wasn't big news because it was just a guy, you know, but, but he was shot in the chest as he drove near the settlement of Hermesh in the, in the Shomron. It's called Hermesh in Shomron. And uh, he was able to drive to help, but by the time he arrived, he had bled out and he died. And while, you know, every murder touches deep in our hearts, ultimately, as human beings, the more we personally identify with the victims, the more it hits home, right? And so here's a picture that I want to share with you from the funeral. And, uh, you know, here you see his wife, Tal, who's holding their two children, ages three and one, exactly the same ages as my children, Dvash and Shiloh. And I couldn't help but picturing Shana holding Dvash and Shiloh while burying, weeping over me, knowing that our children would be without their father that dotes on them and loves them. I'm really happy. I know it sounds weird or strange. But I'm happy for my children that they have me as a father because I love them so much that I'm happy they have a father like me that loves them so much. I know it sounds weird. And just the thought of not being there to be able to give that to them. You know, it was like in some way I was witnessing my own death. It was me wrapped in that Talit prayer shawl being buried with my children wailing in grief and my wife and my family wailing in grief. As a matter of fact, you know, Mayor's wife Tal just sent out a message that her three-year-old is begging her to sleep every night with Mayor's work bag just to have something of his to hold on to, to feel close to. You know, how heartbreaking is that? And then, as I'm sure all of you know, this past week, four holy Jews were murdered. I don't even know if it's really covered by the mainstream media. I don't know if you know that. You know, it was so horrific. It was, it was such cold-blooded murder. Here's their picture. You see that? Tabitha, could you put it up? So I, I want to share just a word about each of these precious, irreplaceable soldiers, the least that they deserve. There's the 63-year-old uh, Ofer Freeman, who is in the top left corner there, who was known 
uh, as quote, his family said, he was a man above and beyond, full of light and goodness, a man who loves to help everyone, unimaginable. And then there was Nachman Shmuel Mordoff, whose light was snuffed out at the young age of 17. And at his funeral, his family said that he was, quote, a smiling boy and energetic and loved by all of his friends. He was always involved in the sacred, helping others, smiling and strengthening the weak. And then the sweet, loving boy, Alicia Antemann, in his senior in high school. He's never going to graduate. He's never going to serve in the army. He'll never get married. He'll never have a family. No. Instead, he was buried in the ground Tuesday afternoon. And the last one that I want to speak about is on the top right corner. And uh, his name was Harel Masud. Harel meaning the mountain of God. Now, while all of these murders, you know, really hit hard, you know, Yehudan, Shermon, Judea, and Samaria, it's like, it's like one place in the eyes of the world and very much in, in the eyes of those living in it. We're all interconnected with each other. We're on the same boat. We're on the same mission. And Har El Masud was particularly close because he spent a lot of time with us on our farm. He came and he volunteered and he strengthened us. And he was a soldier in the idea of, uh, of excellence with a number of our other farm volunteers in a unit called Sfar Hamidbar which is an elite unit of truly gifted desert trackers. You know, a unit that you can only qualify for if you truly love the land enough to know it like the back of your hand. And so he was an ex, uh, he excelled in that unit and he did tremendous things for the, for the nation of Israel. And when Harel had the occasion of, uh, you know, leaving the army every other week or so, every three weeks, he wouldn't just go home and relax as most other soldiers do most of the time. He would go and volunteer to, go, to do guard duty or recover stolen flocks or do whatever else was needed to help fortify and strengthen these fledgling other farms. So here's what uh, his, his mother, Yael, said about her beloved son, Harel. She wrote, she said, our beautiful Haralush. You know, you add ush to the end when you're talking about like, you know, Arush, like just our little Harel. I can't understand that you're not here with us. How can we talk about you in the past tense? You've only just been released from the army, from the most rigid framework, and you've only blossomed. Now that you have finally started to live, to fulfill your dreams and to settle the land that you loved, now she is taking you into the depths of her land. You know, we were told by someone on the scene that actually Harel charged the terrorist without a weapon to try to end the murder and to neutralize him before he killed anyone else. It just this unimaginable bravery and self-sacrifice, you know, and he was shot and killed while doing so. He lived as a selfless warrior and he died as one as well. And so with all this death, all this tragedy, I didn't know what to do, you know, and so I did the best thing I could. I, I opened up the Torah and uh, to the portion of the week, that's where we look. That's the first place we look to see what kind of light and guidance Hashem will hopefully shine into, into our hearts and into my heart. That's what I was looking for. The very first teaching I encountered regarding the very first subject in the portion really spoke to me. And it started me on this sort of spiritual journey this week. And it cast a, a sort of a different light on everything we're going through. So the Torah portion begins. Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, right? This is where it says, V'zot chukat Torah. This is the decree, the chukat of the Torah which Hashem has commanded, saying, speak to the children of Israel, and they shall take to you a completely red cow, without a blemish, and upon which a yoke has not come. Now, we've spoken in the past about different types of commandments in the Torah, 
And if for an in-depth breakdown, you can listen to past fellowships. I try not to cover and recover material in each fellowship to repeat too much from past years. The, we're, we're putting them up every week, all the past fellowships. So that's an opportunity to listen to those. But, you know, in short, there are laws that are self-evidently true, intuitively true, not to murder, let's say. And then there are others which are true that we can determine and understand after the commandments are, are given. But there are also the chukim, you know, the, the decrees, laws that we simply cannot understand. And the prime example of such a law is the law of the red heifer. Why does this unblemished red cow purify the impure? And why does the person who administers the purification become impure himself? These are things we don't understand, but we can humbly seek to you know, grasp certain basic levels of their truth without expecting to understand the deepest reasons behind them, which we're not supposed to understand, at least not in this world. So here's you know, one level of the symbolism of the red heifer that spoke to my heart. The Midrash asks, why the red heifer is a female if all the other sacrificed animals are male. So the symbolic answer that the Midrash gives is it's more of an allegory. And so this allegory teaches that the red heifer comes to atone for the sin of the Egel Azahav, the golden calf, that the Israelites shamefully created and built in the absence of Moshe, who they feared disappeared and abandoned them on the top of the mountain. We all remember what happened. And so here's the allegory that the Midrash gives. It's about a young child of uh, one of the king's maidservants who went into the palace and dirtied the palace of the king. And so the king was, was angry and commands, let the mother of this young child come and clean up her son's mess. Right? So in, in the same way, the king of kings, Hashem, he says, the young child, the golden calf, came and dirtied my palace. Let the mother, the red heifer, come and clean up the mess. In other words, let the red heifer come and atone for the sin of the golden calf. Jeremy, did you hear that before? It's a beautiful teaching. But Rav Biederman nonetheless points out the seemingly obvious contradiction here, right? If indeed the commandment of the red heifer is the paradigm example of a chok, where it has no reason given that we can understand, then aren't we attributing some sort of reason to it by saying that its purpose is to atone for the golden calf? All right, so open your hearts here. Well, can I, can I just say a word about that, Ari? Yes. I think that a way to understand the chok was actually taught to me by Emuna, my nine-year-old, over Shabbat this Friday night. And she said to me that a chok, we might be able to understand some things by piercing into it and, and thinking about it. But the real meaning of a chok is that we would never do that action had we not been commanded. No one would think, let's take a red cow, take its ashes, put it in this kind of water, do this and do that. So the essence of a chok is that like, we have no idea why God is commanding us to do X, but we just do it because that's what God told us to do. But you, while we do it, we might be able to extract some meaning, some ideas, but we would never have been able to come to it on our own had we not been commanded. Right, right, exactly. That's beautiful. That doesn't shock me that Emunah has that sort of insight. But um, no, but the, the fact is that it's, in a lot of ways, it really should remain a hook. We're not supposed to try to understand or attribute meaning to it. So then why this Midrash says that the purpose of the red heifer is to atone for the sin of the golden calf. 
it's a nice idea in your head, right? If they're both cows, one is the mother and one is the a baby and some male. And so there's like that connection and that's a beautiful thing. But aren't we giving meaning to it? So that's the question. So open your hearts here. The Holy Rav Yitzhak Varker, he explains it like this. He explains, yes, the para aduma, the red heifer, is indeed such a decree. We do not know the real reason for it. And therefore we keep it solely because we have emunah. Not Jeremy's daughter, but emunah, meaning faith. We keep it because we have faith. We keep it because we believe in Hashem. And that is why it atones for the idolatry of the golden calf. Because idolatry is definitionally a lack of belief in Hashem. And so the, the emunah, the faith with which we observe the decree of the red heifer is the fixing of the lack of faith that we had in our hearts, which led us to worshiping the golden calf. Did you follow that, Jeremy? Did you guys get that? It's like, it's a beautiful idea. So it's not about understanding the reason. It's about fixing the blemish of needing to understand the reason to begin with. It's about fixing the lack of faith we had throughout the whole golden calf episode by having exactly the faith that we should have had there and applying it to the commandment of the red heifer. And so that gave me a starting point, right? It just like sparked my, my heart and said, oh, emunah, faith, right? Faith, I forgot for a second, faith. You know, like the red heifer, there's some things that we are just not meant to understand. But it's during those times of grief and those times of being in, in a complete state of confusion without the slightest bit of understanding, that is when we most need to fortify our faith. Because it's in those times that we literally have nothing else. And we see exactly that unbelievably in this week's Torah portion, right? So one of the most hotly debated subjects, I think of the Torah, arises when we learn of Moshe's tragic fate from Hashem, his destiny that he will not be entering the land of Israel. Let's look inside. So it's chapter 20, verses 9 to 13. And Moshe and Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moshe lifted up his hand, and with his rod he struck the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spoke to Moshe and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Merivah, because the people of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Okay, so we see here on the simplest level, Moshe is told to speak to the rock, and he hit the rock instead. And for some reason, the divine wisdom with which we cannot argue, but with which we can humbly seek understanding, decreed that Moshe was not worthy to enter the land. And there are many reasons debated, debated about this. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Aaron Rother, in his book, Sha'are Aaron, The Gates of Aaron, lists a full 25 different reasons that Moshe may have been for, forbidden to enter the land of Israel. And by the way, that's not an exhaustive list. There are many more reasons than that. But with our limited time, there are just a few which... I don't know why I chose these, but they spoke to my heart the most that I sort of want to share with you and to, to discuss with you. But before we do, before we go into each individual one, one thing I think we can be clear about 
is that we do know that whatever the, the real reason or reasons were, the common denominator that connects all of them is that they all had to do with the lack of faith in Hashem on the part of Moshe. And we know this because Hashem said it very clearly that he cannot enter the land, quote, because you did not believe in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the people of Israel. Okay, so the first reason I want to throw out there was the reason given by the great sage Rashi. Start with Rashi because he's like out of all sages, out of all commentators, he's like the main, the main one. And he says that if Moshe had indeed spoken to the rock as he was commanded to do, the nation would have learned a valuable lesson. Here's what he says inside. He says, if a rock, this is the, nation, the lesson the nation would have learned. If a rock, which neither speaks nor hears, nor is in need of sustenance, obeys the word of God, how much more so should we? Meaning that they would have learned the power of words and thereby the power of prayer. And, and keep in mind that the group of Israelites that Moshe scolded here was an entirely different group of people for which he was he hit the rock for them years ago. You know, it was their children. It wasn't them. But in some ways, it seems like he was in his mind. He didn't make that shift. He was still talking to them, meaning that the first time he hit the rock in Rephidim, 40 years before, he was doing so for a generation of slaves. These people that he was now talking to, these were the, the children of those slaves who were not born into Egyptian slavery, but rather they were born free men. This was the generation that would be conquering the land of Israel. And the land of Israel is a land of prayer, a land of faith, a faith which it hurts me to say, but Moshe failed to show them through example, through personal example, by speaking to the rock as a free man would, not striking the rock, which is the language of force. That's the language of slaves, as Rabbi Zach says. No, he hit the rock rather than speaking to it as a free man would. So maybe that was his great sin. Maybe that's where the lack of faith lied in the heart of Moshe. Maybe. Or perhaps it was the underlying attribute of Moshe's anger, right? As Maimonides, as the Rambam taught. The people saw and they felt his anger. And our sages tell us, we've talked about this on a lot of fellowships, anger for a personal offense is a lack of faith because anger is essentially a testimony to the belief that whatever is happening is not what should be happening. And that the person who has anger in his heart, in this case, Moshe, in this case, Moses, thought he knew what should be happening. And clearly in the eyes of Moshe, the nation complaining about water was not what should have been happening right at that moment. And even worse, it's Hashem's representative to, uh, in, in the eyes of the people, right? That's who Moshe was. He was their representative. The people could assume from Moshe's anger that Hashem himself must be angry at them too which Maimonides teaches us that in this specific instance, Hashem was not angry at them. Apparently in this situation, in the eyes of Hashem, this specific complaint from the nation in this circumstance was understandable, and it did not kindle his wrath. I actually had to go back and read it again and say, oh, wow, it really does not say, it does not show that Hashem was angry at them at all for this. Okay, and then there's the reason that was taught to me many years ago that I've shared before that I have to share. I think every year I'll have to share this because I love it so much. And this was by Rabbi Eli Yosef, who said that the reason that Moshe called the Jewish people, uh, that Moshe wasn't allowed into Israel because he called the Jewish people rebels, right? He did not say that they were being rebellious. No, he momentarily confused their current behavior 
with their very essence. I mean, it's parenting 101. I would never say to Devash, you're a bad girl. God forbid, I would never say that. I could only say, Devash, you're so sweet and so good. And this bad behavior is not fitting with who you are as a bat melech, as a daughter of the king. And that's actually, we called, a lot of Jews call their daughter bat melech. And that it actually is, you know, we call Dvash that because the, what does that mean, bat melech? It means a daughter of the king. Because Hashem tells us that we are his children. And so my sweet little Dvash is his daughter too. She's the daughter of the king. And the sages teach that perhaps the momentary lack of faith that Moses had in calling the nation rebels was ultimately a lack of faith in Hashem himself. And, uh, you know, the, sage, the, the, the prophets say we're, we're his witnesses. We're his children. We're the apple of his eye. And a lack of faith in the children of Israel is a lack of faith in their father in heaven. And Rabbi Sachs actually strengthened this point uh, by beautifully referencing an idea, an incident that I didn't put together by the burning bush in which Moshe fears that the nation will not believe him. You remember this? He says that they won't believe me and therefore they wouldn't follow him. This is what he said to Hashem. He said, I'm trying to remember where it was in, in Exodus. I didn't find the verse, but he says, but they, meaning the Israelites, will not believe in me. And in response to this, we remember his hand becomes leprous and the Talmud tells us that God responded, but in the end, it will be you who does almost like he was punished attribute for attribute, that he doesn't believe in the nation. So in the end, it will be him that doesn't believe in God. So Hashem was, tr- was saying to Moshe, I think that if he, if he doesn't believe in the people, he can't lead the people. And that Hashem himself has faith in the people. And if Moshe doesn't, by extension, he doesn't have full faith in Hashem. And so, you know, that's an important truth to, to internalize. And so maybe that was it. Maybe that was the idea. Um, actually, Rabbi, Rabbi Khan shared one more that I want to share with you, and I just loved it so much that I needed to. He says that, uh, that Moshe, in his explanation to the nation, he scolded them, and he said, here now, rebels, must we take water out of the rock? Nowhere in his explanation did he mention Hashem. Nowhere did he say God, thereby implicitly taking credit for himself and Aaron as if they alone were able to take water out of the rock. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. Moshe, the greatest prophet who ever was and ever will be, even Moshe himself momentarily lost clarity and took credit to himself and to Aaron for the water without sharing the credit with Hashem. And so maybe it was that lack of faith that was the reason that he couldn't enter the land. Okay, so regardless of which reason we may prefer, whatever speaks to us the most, we see here the thread that connects all of these perspectives is that Moshe lacked faith at that very moment. But the question I want to focus on for the rest of the fellowship is why? Why was Moshe, the most faithful of all servants, all of a sudden lacking faith? And so Rabbi Sachs, I need to credit him with this. He shared a perspective that spoke to my heart so deeply and really in a very personal way. So he points out that the verse immediately preceding this entire episode is the key. It's the secret to the whole thing. Here's the verse. Chapter 20, verses uh, 1 to 2. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrive at the wilderness of of Zin, of Midbar Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. There was no water for the community. So what was it that happened immediately preceding Moshe's inexplicable loss of faith? That's right. Miriam died. He was mourning for his sister, Miriam. Now I'm going to share something very personal. I know very personal, but it's a personal thing. I too have an older sister named Miriam. 
And the older and the more mature I get, the more of my life journey that I go through, the more I see the unbelievable parallels between my relationship with my sister Miriam and, uh, and Moses' relationship with his sister Miriam. And not to in any way, God forbid, Lahavdil, compare myself to Moshe. I'm saying the essence of their relationship. You know, Moshe's sister was responsible for his very life. She was more than just a sister. She was always looking out for him. She was like his protector. She placed him in the basket in the Nile, followed the basket. She convinced the daughter of Pharaoh to hire a Hebrew woman to nurse him. You know, when he returned from Midian, she continued to accompany him throughout his entire life journey and mission up until this point. And so without going into all of the details, my sister Miriam has played and continues to play much of that same role in my life. You know, my ups and my downs, particularly my downs, she has always been protectively overseeing me, taking me in, giving me refuge to heal from whatever thing I just got myself into, whatever I just went through, from my stabbing to when I got burned, to my greatest pains, to my greatest falls. She's always been there guiding me. And I really don't know how I would have made it my life journey thus far without her. And by the way, I think that the episode that most reminds me of my sister and my relationship with her is the episode in which Miriam speaks about Moshe regarding his separating from his wife. You know, when she gets leprosy, she says, why, you know, why did he separate from her? We've been getting prophecy as well. Anyways, she spoke against Moshe in some way. And, and I'll tell you, if Shana and I ever have any sort of disagreement or argument, my sister Miriam always, sometimes violently, takes her side and defends her. And she does this. That's because not- Shana is always right. That's because Shana is right. That's why she takes Shana's side. Not because her name is Miriam, but because you are wrong and Shana is right always. That's the point I'm making, though. It is not, that is not the reason. It's true what you're saying. Shana is always right. And very rarely do we really have fights or disagreements or arguments. That's true. She is always right. But I don't think that that's the real reason that Miriam is siding with her. Because she, she sides with her not only due to her great love for Shana, and she really loves Shana. My whole family loves Shana. My father, may his memory uh, be a blessing. He loved Shana. But uh, she also, my sister, she sides with Shana out of her love for me in her desire for me to be in a happy marriage with a wife who knows that she's loved and defended, not only by her husband, but also by her husband's family. By the way, it's clear to me that Miriam Moses' sister was obviously not driven by any negative feelings towards Moses, God forbid, but rather by her love and her compassion for her sister-in-law, Tzipora, and her desire for her brother also to have a, a loving, healthy, happy marriage. I believe that. I don't know if you and the fellowship agree with that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But to me, it's just self-evidently true. Maybe I'm projecting too much. And so I can only imagine the, the crippling grief that Moshe felt after losing his beloved sister, who guided him and supported him and loved him in such a unique brother-sister relationship. I can only imagine how I would feel. You know, in some ways, it, it, it would rival losing my father. It's just It's a different thing altogether, losing a sibling. And yes, it's true. Moshe was absolutely the greatest of all prophets. There's no question about it. But he was also Moish, you know? He was also Moshe, who lost his older sister and was in the midst of intense grief and mourning. And maybe, again, maybe I'm projecting here, but maybe he was even afraid 
that he wouldn't be able to be the leader of the nation that he needed to be, that the nation needed him to be, that he wouldn't be able to be that without her. So Rabbi Sachs points out that, uh, you know, when we're deeply grieving, we're vulnerable and we're destabilized. And, uh, you know, for those of us who have truly grieved, we don't need to be told this by Rabbi Sachs. We've experienced it. We know it. And we know from Jacob's loss of prophecy for 22 years as he mourned for Joseph. When we're in mourning, we lose the depth and the clarity of our connection to Hashem. And, and due to his grief, Jacob did not have one, not one prophetic encounter during the entire 22 years that Joseph was gone. And so was the, the depth and the level of his grief. And so, so here we are. Right in the, in the wake of these horrific murders and these precious, holy, special souls have been ripped away from us. And it always seems like Hashem takes the best from us. And we're just grieved. We're still grieved. And so it wasn't clear to me how to properly respond or what to do or how, how to bring light from such great darkness. And then, rather than me discovering the answer myself, you know, the, the Parsha helped illuminate the light, but in the most practical, real way, these holy Judean shepherds that we're surrounded by, that we just love so much, they really showed me the way. The very next day after the murders, our partner Yossi, his sweet daughter Shachar, and her husband Elisha took their team of brave young shepherds and, and all their farmhands. And I don't like calling them shepherds or farmhands because that's what they're doing out there. But really, they're, they're living in the land. They're settling the land. They're bringing light and life to the land. They're like just so courageous. Anyways, all Alicia and Shachar and all of these young men they, and women, they ascended the, to the new mountain in Judea to establish their new farm, which they named Chavat Harel, the Harel farm, in memory of Alicia's beloved friend who he just buried. I met him. I met Harel Masood, but Alicia spent years with him. He was among his best friends. And so we... we we aliyad up to this spot on the mountain. Alicia even gave me the great honor of leading the convoy. I'll never forget in my life, I led the convoy up to the new mountain. An experience and a privilege that I'll never forget. I had one of the shepherds record it. If you want a quality recording, don't give your camera to a shepherd to record. They barely even know what the machine is. So it's, it's a very choppy, weird recording. It will always mean something to me, even if nobody else understands it. But here's a, a short video of that great moment. So those were just some, uh, some of the videos, pictures of, of that, uh, that ascension. You know, towards the end there was the, the boy sitting after, I think it must have been 36 straight hours throughout the night, having been in the funeral and then working all day because they need to establish it and set it up quick before anyone comes to destroy it. And just think about this, okay? Alicia returned straight from the funeral of Harel, his fellow soldier and one of his best friends. He was still wearing the shirt which he tore in grief just hours before, and he ascended to the new mountain. He took his young wife and his beautiful little baby, Be'er Rifka, and he set up camp. And these vicious jihadi terrorists, right? What did they want to do? They sought to scare the nation of Israel. They wanted to strike fear into our hearts. And how did these young, brave Judean shepherds respond? With courage, with faith, 
even in the midst of their grief, they had the clarity of faith. The prophets tell us that there's no greater sign of redemption than the mountains of Israel turning green and bearing their fruit. And so in response to such great darkness, that is what they did. They brought life and light to the mountains of Israel. And in the merit of their friend Harel, who loved the land with all of his heart, they redeemed the land with all of their hearts and the merit of their friend Harel, who loved it with all of his heart. They weren't paralyzed in victimhood and complaining and whining and helplessness. No, not a word of that. They were empowered as true soldiers of faith. They didn't even have any weapons. They don't even have weapons. I have a, a Glock and an M16. All of them, not one of them have, have a weapon. I think they have like a stick and a baseball bat. And they're nothing to defend themselves. Their weapons, their weapons, they were nothing more than, than courage and faith. And they knew that they don't need anything else. And then, right, Jeremy, the very next day, we went to strengthen and fortify another new fledging farm that has also suffered great pains. And this farm is in the southern hills of Hebron, also in the heart of Judea. We went to bring them sheep to strengthen their flock, which had been depleted you know, from theft and from marauders. Uh, I'll tell you what happened to the, the main shepherd. He was, he's a beloved friend of ours. But anyways, we went to strengthen and to encourage them and bring them sheep after what they had just endured. Here's a, a link to a short video that I recorded. Shalom, here we are in the Ma'on farms in southern hills of Hebron. And we're at the sheep farm of our good friend Yisrael. That's Yisrael right there. <laughs> and... Uh, about a month ago, he was ambushed by a group of jihadists who threw a stone like the size of a small boulder at his head, and, uh, and he was in the hospital for a number of weeks. He's still suffering tremendously from it, and half of his face is paralyzed, but that's not stopping him from coming out here. And they're trying to scare us. They're trying to weaken our resolve to, and our connection to Judea. And as Jews, Judea is our indigenous land. This is where we're from. We're made of this earth. And uh, we're not allowing it to scare us. We're not allowing it to shake us. And we've just brought them another 30 sheep to strengthen their flock of sheep. And uh, we're going to be able to go out with them to the pasture. And here are the sheep that we brought. Because in the end of the day, the forefathers were asked by Pharaoh, What are you? Who are you? And they said, we are shepherds and our fathers are shepherds and Jews are shepherds and we're shepherding our, our sheep here in the hills of Judea. And it doesn't matter the European Union, the United Nations and all the jihadists in the world, nothing will be able to stop us. We will have our feast spread before us, surrounded by our enemies. And because Hashem is protecting us, God is protecting us, they will not be able to harm us. And here we are back in Judea in the southern Hebron Hills, stronger than ever with these incredible Jews, resilient, powerful Jews who fear God and love God. And uh, it's in the merit of all of you who have helped us to make it happen. I mean, and if that wasn't enough to raise our spirits, if that wasn't enough to empower us and give us hope, the very next day after that, one of the shepherdesses from our farm who married the brother of one of our shepherds came back to the farm 
מקיים את הילד הזה לאביו ואימו ויקרא לשמו בישראל. video of the Brit Mila. I wish that the video was a little bit longer and I'll tell you why. I'm getting more and more accustomed to just seeing the Judeans and I almost I, I, I kind of take it for granted but I'm like watching the fellowship and I see Shiloh in South Africa there with I think her sister and I see Esther in Germany and I'm like watching the faces of all of the people from all around the world and I'm looking at that Beit Tefillah as they're doing the circumcision. And in my imagination growing up as a Jew in Atlanta, Georgia, I would imagine what the Jews of the Bible looked like, like the King David Jews, the Samson Jews, the Joshua and Caleb Jews. What did they look like? Because my dad was a doctor and my mom was a doctor and my brother's an accountant and we lived in Atlanta. And then I'm looking at that video that you shared of them blowing that ram's horn and all, it's like a restoration, a, a resurrection, a resurrection of the Jewish people in Judea. It's really like unbelievable what's happening on the Arugot farm and the farms that are coming out of Arugot. It's just a revolution. Yeah, it's beautiful. And you know, if you want more, I have probably 10 times the amount because I couldn't stop taking my phone out. I want to be present in the moment. But uh, there were just so many beautiful things happening during that ceremony that I just kept on pulling the phone out. So I have a lot of, a lot of uh, footage there. But anyways, you know, in, in the wake of all of this, you know, death that we had endured this past week, the life that Hashem was bringing into the world was really, you know, giving us the joy and the hope that we needed to fortify our faith in him. Oh, yeah. And by the way, you know what they named their son? What did they name him? Are you guys ready for this? Jeremy, I'm sure you heard this. They named their son David ben Yishai, David, son of Jesse. That's right. Just like my name is Ari Yehuda, right? With my first name being Ari and my middle name being Yehuda. And many of my friends call me Ari Yehuda. And in Judea, we actually call by both names. This precious little treasure was named David ben Yishai. David is first name and ben Yishai is his middle name. David ben Yishai, meaning David, the son of Jesse. And funny enough, his father's name is actually Jesse. So his name is David, son of Jesse, son of Jesse. I, I love that. You know, so, so with all the darkness in the world, with all the blood that is spilled in our land, the very name they gave their son spoke of their unwavering, unwavering faith in redemption. It spoke of their trust that we that we're living in the times of Mashiach, in the, in the times of Messiah. They're trusted despite it all, or even because of it all, that the arrival of Mashiach is imminent. And they're not going to simply sit back and wait for it. No, that's not the Judean style. No, they're not going to sit back and wait. They're going to hasten it. They're going to hasten it through their faith. They will bring it. I want you to know, friends, I've been um, reading your prayer requests. I've been praying your prayer requests. 
and there is a lot of pain and sadness and so much grief. And it really seems like everybody is going through something. But we cannot let our grief cripple us or confuse us or paralyze us. We can't let the, the immorality and the decadence and the outright evil that seems like it's taking over so much of the world, we can't let that cause us to lose our faith. On the contrary, the opposite. We have to build our faith. I used to think, you know, that Hashem removed prophecy from those who were sad, like he did with Jacob, on some level as a punishment for being sad. I used to think that Hashem would sort of block up the clarity lines of our communication with him because we weren't deserving of it if we allowed ourselves to be sad. But now I think that the lines of communication, they're stunted not as a punishment, but really as an opportunity. That this grief and sadness come, brings with it a real opportunity, an opportunity to connect with Hashem without necessarily reciprocity, to connect with Him from our deepest place of confusion and darkness, an opportunity to strengthen our faith when there is no light in sight, an opportunity to serve Hashem from the most beautiful place imaginable, from the greatest darkness imaginable. And so, you know, I want to take this opportunity to bless all of us with spiritual strength to grow our faith. More than anywhere else, to grow our faith in our darkest places, to fortify our trust in Hashem's goodness more than anywhere else in those places where we see it least. And perhaps it was because of that, that exact lack of faith that the greatest, most humble prophet in history wasn't able to enter the promised land and usher in the final redemption. And perhaps it's exactly that strengthening of faith in our own hearts that we will be able to usher in the final redemption and to finish what he started. I know that's a uh, very ambitious thought, but I really think it's in our hands we can do that. That's what we're here for right now in this generation at this time. And so with that, it's my greatest joy to bless all of you with the blessing of Aaron, the high priest. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yisem lecha shalom May Hashem bless you and protect you. May Hashem make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Hashem lift up His countenance to you and give you peace. Amen. Love you, my friends. Be in touch. We have a lot coming up. A lot of good things. Strengthen our faith and our hope. Shalom, shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.